0: I just love this passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter (coughs) 3. And now let's pray again. Because I don't have anything to say before
1: I pray. So let's pray. Dear Father in heaven... Now we come to the time where together we have set aside in this meeting for the reading and the uh, study of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the Bible. Thank you for the revelation of your truth. Thank you for how you instruct us through it. We pray that you would help us to attentively listen. We pray that you would grant in the room here among each person a believing heart. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. Boy, especially in this, Lord God, wherein we're actually commanded to rejoice in you. Above anything else, Lord, help us to be obedient to that. We thank you, Lord God. Uh, We pray that you would work now powerfully through your word, I know that my exertions don't mean really anything. It's hearing from You and having Your Spirit teach us that's important. We know that. And so we ask for it, Lord, because we want to glorify You in our lives. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's just go right into reading it. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord. For me, to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, persecuting the church concerning righteousness which is in the law blameless but what things were gained to me I should put the emphasis on the word were what things were gained to me these I have counted loss for Christ yet indeed I also count all things loss that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Certainly the, the passage goes on from there. That's not really the end of the thought, but there's, there's plenty there to talk about in one time together, if we can even do that. But I should at least note that after saying all that, the next thing he says is, I have not that I've already attained. And certainly that's the part of it maybe that I feel like I can identify with the most because, I mean, the apostle Paul in the end of that passage is talking about attaining the glory of the resurrection like Christ's resurrection and as a result, he wants not just to, just to slide through his life, but he actually wants to share in Christ's sufferings as he serves. And, um, and of course, you know, want to live that kind of life. He says, you know, not, not that I've attained that already. And I, I read this passage of scripture and as I kind of thought through it and, and meditated on it and wrote a little bit about it in my preparations for today, I, uh, I, I, I found myself thinking, you know, I don't measure up with this at all, you know. I mean, I mean, I, I just feel like I know this is where I, in my heart, I want to be, and I think that's the point of the passage: is he's trying to teach them that living your life here is all about Christ. I mean, this is the book that says things like, "For me to live is Christ, and and to die is gain," you know and and bless you and and so and so what he's talking about here is is like the attaining of of that kind of a a life that's just lived for Christ and then i was somewhat comforted when you read ahead to verse 12 to see of all people the apostle paul say not that i have already attained or am already perfected Whew. glad to hear that because that's that's of course how i feel too is like and and you know i'm nothing of of Paul and even Paul is like you know, not that I have attained that. And of course that's a reminder of what? It's a reminder that this life that he's talking about us living here is not a life of a religious pursuit of being accepted by God. That's done by his grace through faith when we believe. When we believe the gospel, it's finished. It is to be worked out with fear and trembling as we live our lives as he works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. But it's finished. The destiny is secure and done. So I don't read a passage of scripture like this and say, boy, I don't measure up to this. I must not be a Christian. No, 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 no. I read it and I say, I haven't attained this, but I'm here living my life day by day because the Lord wants me to pursue him. The Lord wants me to have a heart that yearns even to share in his sufferings because I'm looking ahead to the resurrection. I'm not looking to find my joy and happiness here. I'm looking ahead to the resurrection one day when just as Jesus was raised up, I will be raised up. And even if I happen to live my life long enough all the way to the coming of the Lord, I won't experience being raised up, but I will experience being snatched out of here and changed in the twinkling of an eye. So whichever one happens to come first in my life, that's what I'm supposed to be looking forward to, right? And Paul says, living that kind of life that is so devoted to Jesus, even Paul says, I haven't attained that yet. I'm not even perfected yet. And he's in prison. Paul's like, I want to live a life that shares in Christ's suffering so that I may know the glory of his resurrection. And he's in prison saying, I haven't attained that yet. what? what am I? You know, not, not close to that. Although, I, you know, I could provide some evidence even this week to you of things that happened in my life that result in a bit of suffering on my part that I believe are a form of persecution for the sake of the ministry and for the sake of the Lord, but nothing that measures up to this. And so I was somewhat comforted to see that the Apostle Paul immediately launches into saying, I haven't attained it yet. And you know what? What one of us can say that? Right? And that should comfort you that even someone who was at the level, if you will, of devotion of the Apostle Paul felt that he had not attained that yet. And you know what?
0: Just be like,
1: I don't look, look, the letters that are written to the church, like by Paul and some of the others, they're written to guide us through our lives as Christians. But listen to me. There are things written in there that we ought to read. And heed. We ought to read and believe and obey. But they're not given in the same context as, say, the law of Moses. Like, they're not things that are written and like, if you do them, I'll let you stay in the land. But as soon as you turn away from me, I'm going to turn, I'm going to fight against you, and I'm going to throw you out of there. Right? That's the law. We're set free from that. We're set free from that kind of thinking entirely. Amen? That should get a resounding amen from everyone in the room unless I didn't say it well. We're set free from trying to prove ourselves to God so that maybe he will accept us one day. Listen, God accepted already the sacrifice of his son for you. And you, by believing on him, have been credited with his righteousness. You've been credited with the standing of the one who made the sacrifice that God accepted and received as sufficient. And by his grace, you are saved. And so life is not a day-by-day trying to prove myself to God. Though it is a day-by-day dying to myself confessing my sins if I battle and struggle with that, which we all do, reading His Word and praying, growing in our most holy faith, growing in grace, serving Him and bearing fruit. But it's all for the glory of God who has saved us. We are free. We are free from any
0: burden of guilt or
1: Hopelessness, self-condemnation that comes from sin. Christ absorbed it all when He died on the cross. Hallelujah! Yes. I like that. All right. Let's go through the passage verse by verse. So He says, finally... And then after he says, finally, there's two more chapters. So you see, I come by it honestly, right? You know, I'm not, I'm not the only one that says like, okay, we're almost done. And then there's another half of the book yet to go, right? But listen, he says, finally, my brethren, and the significance of the words, my brethren, other than pointing out the fact that the church is family, which we talked about some last week, and the implications of that is... When somebody would write like that or if someone would say something like that, like if I came up to one of my brothers, say, Jimmy, sitting here, and I, I went up and I really had a point that I wanted to make to Jimmy. Like if I just wanted to talk, because like hey, Jimmy, what's up? And we start to talk, right? But if I go up to him and I shake his hand and I look him right in the eye and I say, Jimmy, my brother. And then what I'm about to say next, I'm adding a certain amount of gravity to it, right? And I think that's what the, the literary device is here. by By saying, finally... My brethren, there is a there is a weight that in the form of writing is applied to what is next. And what is next? Rejoice in the Lord, period. Note that even though what we call verse 1 does not end there, the sentence does. It's a sentence. And it says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. One of the things that strikes me about that is that the form of that is what? It is a, begins with a C and ends with a D. It is a, it's a command. It's a command. May I suggest to you that there's something profound about that? Shake your head yes, because that's my job. I'm allowed to suggest things to you. So, so the whole point is what? Look, we as people can very easily slide into allowing joy to simply come to us in whatever form the circumstances of life, see fit to dish them out to us. May I suggest to you that Paul is saying here that what you find your joy in is a decision that you make. As every command every command demands a decision every command demands that you say yes to it i understand that god is sovereign but you need to understand that god's sovereignty is not just he makes commands and then he does them that would be that would be a very confusing and futile form of communication may i suggest to you that sovereignty also means He's Lord, he's in charge. And as Jesus himself said, concerning sovereignty, why do you call me Lord, but don't do the things that I say, right? So listen, all of that to point out that our joy is not to be found, listen, 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 it's not to be found simply in what incidentally presents itself to us in our lives. This should be a liberating thought for you who struggle with joy in finding it. Because what happens with joy is circumstances we allow to dictate to us how we feel. And what Paul is really pointing out here is that joy is not just a feeling response to the circumstances of life. Joy is a decision that you make. Joy is something that you choose to have finding it in something that is worthy and able to give it to you. Like, if you choose to find your joy in self-destructive behavior, you're not going to find it there, right? But if you choose to find your joy in something or someone who is absolutely able to deliver it, you will find it. And Paul says, the Lord is such a one. Hallelujah. Rejoice. Do you notice the form of the word rejoice? You see the word joy in the middle of it, right?
0: Joy is a noun. Rejoice
1: is the verb form of joy. You see that it starts in English, just talking about the English word. You see that it starts with what first syllable? Re, which in a typical English word typically means what? To do something over and over, right? To continually do something. Do it again and then do it again and do it again and do it again. So the word rejoice is an imperative. The subject of the sentence is you understood, right? He's speaking to the reader and saying to the Christian reader, rejoice. In other words, find your joy. In other words, choose to find your joy again and again and again. In the Lord. See, what we often do is we choose to find our joy in things that may not necessarily be innately bad. They may be very good. But anything that is of this world has the potential over time to disappoint you. I've been teaching my daughter to drive. I have I can't describe for you the immense joy that that has been because she's taken to it so fast. And she's like, not fast as in her speed, but the in actually, like, don't take that the wrong way. But she's taken to it and, and like, we had a real long drive. She's driving on the highway yesterday and everything. It's like, that's awesome, you know? And so, but you, and, and so, and so it's, it's okay for dad to find joy in, in his daughter driving the car, Right? But my mom, uh, who's probably watching this, so hi, mom, if you're watching this, I doubt she can post a comment on Facebook and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I doubt that my mom sits there every day and says, man, I am so proud of Louis that he drives. She's my mom, so I can't criticize her, but anybody else I would say, you gotta find something else to be happy about. You know, if you're like, you're happy that your 50 something year old son drives. See, because when you find your joy in
0: things in life, even, and there's nothing wrong with it,
1: but it wears off. Or sometimes, that's a sort of like almost humorous, innocuous way of describing it. But there are more serious ways to describe what I'm talking about, which is sometimes you look for joy in things and they turn around and they really hurt you. We find our joy in relationships that maybe if we step back and take a good look, we shouldn't be in them. We find our joy in things. We find our
0: joy in possessions, you know? We
1: find our joy in status, and what people think of us. We find our joy in the accomplishments of people who are under our influence because subconsciously we can sort of claim some of the joy of that accomplishment that they've achieved. We look for joy in
0: all those things. And we're looking in the wrong place. Christians Christian is told, rejoice in the lord may i suggest to you that
1: if you find if you seek out and find your joy in god and if you make the decision listen not to depend upon this world for joy something comes up in this life and makes you happy thank god for it and be happy right fine but i'm not going to depend on the trappings of this world for joy When you decide as a Christian, I'm going to find my joy in my day-by-day walk with my Lord. And I'm going to seek him with my whole heart. And I'm not going to let anything interfere. You know what's going to happen? You're going to find joy. And that joy is going to be there again and again and again and again for the rest of your walk on this planet. That is absolutely true. Paul is not suggesting something here that you try to see if maybe it'll work. It's not just a psychological gimmick. God is the giver of all joy. The Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for us that we would be set free from our sins, be reconciled to God, walk day by day with God, serve God, even share in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, all with our eyes set on the end, which is sealed and assured and guaranteed. Nothing can separate us from his love. We will be with him forever. And when you walk closely with God and you don't let you... You maintain holiness in your life, which we're called to do. That's also a command, right? Uh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Look that up, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Not right now. Look it up for yourself. later. We're called to do that. When you do that, when you seek and pursue holiness, and you walk closely with Jesus, you will find joy that returns again and again and again and again. And if you're not finding that, may I suggest to you that you ought to examine your life. And maybe you're looking for joy in the wrong things, and that's why you find yourself disappointed. And people will come to me sometimes and say, I don't find any joy in walking with God. And then when we start to talk about their lives, it becomes apparent in five seconds why. Because their lives are completely consumed with depending upon life circumstances to give them joy. Life circumstances are unavoidable, right? You have to face things in life. You have to tackle hard things in life. You need to pray and address difficult things in life. What you do not, as a Christian, have to do Is depend on the outcome of those things for your joy because your joy as a Christian is found in your reconciliation and and relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And if that's not true, get some counsel, get some time alone with God, examine yourself, come talk to me, talk to a brother or sister who is spiritual, whom you trust, who has a good walk with the Lord. Get and get some people to pray. Get together and pray. Get some people who love to read the word. Come out to a Bible study at church. Come out to a prayer meeting at church. Get yourself involved with things. Don't get yourself in a situation where you're just sitting and you're focused on yourself. And you're sitting, you're thinking about yourself. And, oh, I want this to go my way and I want that to go my way. Listen, life, that's not how life is lived. Life is not about just sitting and waiting for everything
0: to go my way. Life is about, for the Christian, rejoicing in the Lord.
1: And I can't stress enough that he's not talking about God just dumping a big joy bucket out of heaven that somehow supernaturally lands on you.
0: You are commanded to rejoice in him.
1: And, it's, and listen, his commands are not Grievous. They're not burdensome. He makes not a command about such a thing and it's unattainable. It's readily attainable. But you have to trust Him. And you have to obey Him. The hymn writer said there's no other way for being happy in Jesus. Knew knew what they were talking about.
0: Right? Wow, that's just the first half of verse 1.
1: Now, Listen to the second half of this. I I really could make the whole sermon about rejoicing in the Lord, but I don't want to because I really like the rest of the passage of Scripture too. The way the next sentence in verse 1 I think is best to be understood is as a contrast. You notice there is a phrase that comes before the comma and then there's a phrase after it that begins with the word but. Right? So there's two things that are being contrasted. and What two things are opposites? Right? This is how you exegete Scripture. Um, well, it seems apparent to me, the first phrase starts with, for me, and the second phrase starts with, for you. So, this is exactly what I was just talking about. The Apostle Paul did not sit around and wait, just waiting to see, oh, woe is me, I'm not supposed to be in prison here. I'm so upset about this, they need to let me out of this prison now. He did not do that. He was not focused on
0: himself. He was focused on them.
1: He was focused on the Lord and he was focused on the people that he was ministering to, though he lived, he, had, he couldn't text them. He couldn't post things on their Facebook pages. Couldn't even really
0: send them a letter in the mail. Couldn't make a phone call. He had to write this and then have it hand-delivered. But he was
1: focused on them. He was not focused on himself. And what he says is, for me, to write the same things to you is not tedious. But for you, it is safe. So what Paul says is, these things that I'm writing to you, meaning, the, and I think, it's, I think it's a bit of an interjection in the letter that's, Semi-random, meaning he's talking about what he was just talking about and he's talking about what he's about to talk about. Does that make sense? In other words, it's not... Listen, for me, it's not tedious to write this stuff, but for you, notice the word but, but for you, it's safe. So I'm telling you to rejoice in the Lord and I'm telling you what to look out for too, which is about what he's about to say. But even in just making that little statement they mattered to him more than he did to himself. Which is a great way to understand how to obey rejoice
0: in the Lord. Put the focus
1: of your heart on God. You know, one more thing about rejoice in the Lord. I didn't mean to turn this whole thing into a sermon about just this one phrase, which must just drive you crazy. But you know what? It's not tedious for me to say it. And for you, I think it's beneficial. So, so I'll go ahead and say it, okay? To apply that. So, I'm like, that phrase, rejoice in the Lord, is one that even lost people can understand. And, uh, my wife and I were band parents because my daughter's in the band and had a band event last week. And, and I had a, uh, I had a conversation with one of the, uh, other band parents. And it's a woman who knows I'm a pastor and, I've invited her to church, and I've invited her kids to come to things, and that hasn't happened yet. But I, I think one day it will. You know, pray about that. But um, uh, she, she because I'm a pastor, she just started talking to me about something hard that's going on in her life, right? And I told her this: what I'm telling you. And she's not a Christian, as far as I know. But I told her this: I said, you need to find your joy in God. You need to find your joy in the Lord. And even though a non-believer, someone who's not been regenerated, someone who does not have the Holy Spirit living in them, I don't think that person's ready yet to find their joy in God. They can at least understand it on a conceptual level. Yeah, 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 find your joy in God. And I think she's Catholic, and, and so there's, like some, uh, there's at least some basic knowledge of some things that are good, and there's some knowledge of some things that maybe aren't quite right on target. But, but look... The point is this it enabled me from there to launch into what it meant to find your joy in God you know and it opened up the opportunity for me to talk about Christ and share the gospel and talk about church and and then pray for the person so i just want to encourage you with that this whole this whole idea of rejoicing in the lord is something that should permeate your own existence, seeking your joy in God continually. That's what rejoice in the Lord means. It means to continually seek to find your joy in the Lord and not in other things. And that can even be something that becomes a platform for you to talk to other people about the Lord. Okay? Now, continuing again. Verse 2. Verse 2. Here's what he gets into with him. Beware of dogs. See, the Apostle Paul was a cat person. We really like cats, right? Yeah, shake your head, yes. No, it's okay. Some of you, No, that's not what he meant. It's, it's actually a very strong statement when he says, beware of dogs, because he's referring to people here, and the particular people that he's referring to with this really provocative statement is uh, the people that he found himself at odds with frequently. He found himself frequently combating with Jews, and he himself was a Jew, but he found himself frequently battling with Jews over the fact that Gentiles who believed uh, it was enough for those Gentiles to simply believe, where there were many Jews who said, no, It's not enough for you to just believe. You also need to be circumcised and you need to begin to observe the law of Moses. That's who he's talking about. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. And a bit of a PG-13 moment here, and I won't go into details, but when he talks about mutilation there, he's, he's, he's derisively describing the act of circumcision because... What he's saying is, what he really means to say is, these religious legalists are implying that you must be circumcised. All you're doing is practicing mutilation by doing that, self-mutilation by doing that, because there is no act physically that you can do to save yourself. Do you understand? That's, that's where the terms come from. Dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. Strong and provocative. Why? Because all of the things that they're promoting, starting with circumcision and the observance of all of the law of Moses, takes away from grace through faith and the sacrifice that Christ had made. So he warns the people of this church, beware of that. Just like it's the same thing that he says in the beginning of the book of Galatians, when he says, if anyone comes to you with any other gospel, which is not another, but if anyone comes to you with any other thing, let him be accursed, right? Because the whole letter, the book of Galatians is about these people, call them Judaizers, if you will, who want to impose upon a Gentile who believes and receives the Holy Spirit and has the joy of the Lord in them and receives gifts from the Holy Spirit and the capacity to read and understand God's word and they're growing by grace in the most holy faith that they have in the Lord. What what can you add to that? As the book of Galatians says, having begun in the spirit, can you now perfect yourself in the flesh? And so Paul says these people who come along and say, no, 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 it's not enough just to believe. You need to be circumcised and observe the law as well. Paul calls them dogs, evil workers, and mutilators. And then says what? For we are the circumcision. What a powerful statement. What a bold and provocative statement that is. We are the circumcision. And notice what Paul does there with the word we. Paul who is a Jew, who is about to uh, outlay for us his Jewish pedigree, Paul, who is a Jew, identifies himself with these Philippian, predominantly Gentile believers in Macedonia who have believed and by God's grace are saved. Paul, who is a pedigreed Jewish religious official himself when he was known as Saul in his past, Distances himself from all of that and uses the word we to include himself with the Gentiles who believe by faith. And he didn't mean to deliberately separate his fellow Jews off. Really what he's meaning to do, he didn't care, Paul didn't care about Jew, Gentile, any of that stuff. What Paul cares about is believe or don't believe. That's all that matters. So Jew or Gentile, if they were believers, Paul counted himself as one of you. Jew or Gentile, Outside the faith, you're they. But if Jewish, if a Jewish or Gentile believer, you're we. And so Paul says, "What? We are the circumcision, not a circumcision that uh, it is made with men's hands, men's tools, and men's exertions. We are, symbolically speaking, the circumcision." Circumcision was something that was done to every Jewish boy on the eighth day to identify himself legally as part of the nation of Israel and a entering a covenant for life wherein they would practice the law that God gave to Moses. Paul says here boldly, we are the circumcision who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because we are now under the terms of the New Covenant because when Jesus sacrificed His life and died on the cross and rose from the dead and opened the door to faith to all who would believe, the Old Covenant was made null and void. It matters not anymore. And, and when you really dig into it, the Old Covenant never could save anybody to begin with. Another story for another day. But way before there was an Old Covenant, like how I say another story for another day and then I start to tell the story. Another thing I do all the time. But, 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 but way before there was an old covenant, way before there was a law, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So even before justification has always been by faith. Justification by faith and not through the works of the law was not new with the new covenant. It was all, it was in place before there was an old covenant. The old covenant was given to keep the world in place, recognizing its sinfulness before God. And when the new covenant came, all of the wrath that men deserve under the old covenant was poured out on Christ. Christ shed his blood and sealed the new covenant that all who trusted him, Jew or Gentile, are forever sealed, reconciled with God. And so Paul says, we are the circumcision.
0: What can you, look, if you've believed the gospel and you've received a new heart, you've
1: received his spirit, you've received joy inexpressible, you've received the place in the body of Christ, you've received the capacity to pray and believe and to read and to study God's word and to understand and to be encouraged by it, how can you possibly perfect that or add to that by being circumcised? You can't. And so Paul says, we are the circumcision. Look, who worship, and, and, then, and then there's three things to describe. Is like a, a, one of these Pauline lists. There are three things that are listed to describe a true believer, right? There are other things you can say about true believers. You can talk about them bearing fruit. You can talk about them serving the Lord, preaching the gospel. But three characteristics of a true believer are listed here. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. That's one. We worship God in the spirit. Two, rejoice in Christ Jesus. See verse one. That's what he just commanded us to do. And three, have no confidence in the flesh. And then he adds, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, which is what leads him into what he says next. But three characteristics there of People who are the circumcision. Three characteristics there of people who truly are Christians. Number one, we worship in the Spirit. This goes back to what Jesus himself said when he was talking to the woman at the well, right? When he was speaking to her, you can read about this in John chapter 4, and uh, I'm sure this is familiar to you, but she is what? She's not a Jew, she's a, she's a Samaritan, right? And so there was this natural, centuries-old division between Jews and Samaritans, even though in their ancestry they were related to one another. They were brothers, they were part of the same nation. But the Samaritans were descendants of, of forced, Assyrian forced marriages that created generations of people living in that region for centuries. And so the, uh, the Samaritans, as... Uh, Uh, They were the descendants of the northern tribes of Israel, which had split off from Judah, the southern tribe, and basically formed in Samaria their own form of worship. And when Jesus is having this conversation with the woman at the well, the woman brings up to him, you know, we worship the way that we worship on this mountain here. You Jews, you say that Jerusalem is the place where one uh, ought to worship. And how did Jesus respond to that? He said, the day is coming and now is that on this mountain, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem is the place to worship the Father. Nullifying all of the religion. No, he says, the true worshipers of the Father are the ones who what? Worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's the, In other words, the religion aspect of it, Jesus said it, is all null and void. The real worshiper of God is the one who worships in spirit. And she, she then, she recognizes that something's going on and says, we're told that when Messiah comes, he'll teach us everything. Right? And what did Jesus say? Something that he didn't say to very many people? I who speak to you am He, And that, listen, man, that, 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 that flipped some things in motion that involved this woman running and getting everybody from the town. I think Sychar was the name of the town that was nearby. And, and they all came out and, and, and they listened to Jesus and he stayed there in Samaria for a few more days. I understand Jews had no dealings with Samaritan. They had centuries old rivalry. and more Rivalry doesn't even cut it. Between them, right? And so Jesus says, look, the real worshiper is the person who has faith, receives the Messiah by faith, and then we worship God in the Spirit. That's what Paul says here. We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. In other words, we're not religious pursuers of God. I'm not trying to do things I'm not trying to observe the Sabbath or avoid eating this or eating that or combing my hair this way or dressing that way or making all these rules for myself because if I do, then maybe God will be okay with me. It's all done. All of the sacramental system. Study this, read that, stand up, kneel down, do this, do that, certify this, certify that. It's all finished. What He has called us to is to worship Him in the Spirit. His spirit lives in us. His spirit testifies with our spirit. The Holy Spirit in us testifies with the spirit of the Christian, the inner man, the inner woman, the inner Christian. The spirit of God living in us testifies that we are his child. And we respond to him with praise and worship and adoration and faith that spills into our lives in actions of service and fruit that glorifies the Lord. That is the true worshiper of God. The person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for the Christian, it's all about Christ. All about Christ.
0: Yeah. It's all about Christ.
1: Who's the circumcision? Not the people who say you have to get circumcised. The real circumcision are we who have faith in Christ Jesus. Who we, we worship God in the spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. I find my joy in Christ, I find my joy in Jesus, I find my joy in Him, He who came and rescued me, He who came and loved me and gave His life for me and rose from the dead, He who came to set me free, broke my chains off and now I'm free, He who has set my destiny as eternity with Him. He who bore the burden of all of my sin that I could never begin to pay back or even recount it all to try to fix it, ever. I find my joy in Christ. That's the real Christian. The real Christian is the one who worships in spirit, rejoices in Christ, and what's the third thing? Has no confidence
0: in the flesh. Do
1: I want to serve God? Yes. Should I serve God? Yes. Do I want to be holy? Yes. Do I want to, in practice, do the things that the commandments at least morally say? Like, do I want to not lie and not steal and honor my parents and not use the Lord's name in vain and not covet, etc., etc.? Yes, of course! But if I find myself Doing well, old Keith Green song immediately comes to mind. And, and if I'm ever found doing well, uh, how's it go? Let me not, uh, how's it go? And if I'm doing well, let me, how's that it go? It's, uh, come on, old Christians, break it down. Who, who said it? Let me never seek a crown, right? You're not old. Hey, that's great. Rachel knows Keith Green. Awesome, impressive. Let me never seek a crown if I'm doing well, but give all the glory to you, right? Anyway, but that's the whole point. Yes, I want to do all those things, but I'm not doing any of that to try to justify myself before the Lord because I find no confidence
0: in the flesh.
1: Turn to Titus 3. I turn to Titus 3 a lot. But you know what? I'm okay turning to Titus 3 because Titus 3 says to turn to Titus 3 a lot. Did you know that? It does. It says it right in the text. See, I'll show you. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Look, remind them, that's the Christians. That's you and I. We're them, all right? Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Right? So he starts off by saying, here's how they ought to be. Then he says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when we finally figured it all out, and got circumcised and began obeying the law of Moses, everything changed. Thank you. (laughs) That's not what it says, right? But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Through what? Through a bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with you. Through the washing of regeneration... And the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by what his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then look at verse eight. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm occasionally. Oh, no. Constantly. Right? So we're always supposed to be coming back to these things. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes and contentions and all that stuff. Avoid all that. Right? But you see, Paul says that the Christian is the one who puts no confidence in his flesh. And here's Why? because we weren't saved because when we used to be malicious, when we used to be lustful, when we used to be envious and hateful and hating each other, when we used to be that, it's not because we had an aha moment and decided to change our lives and everything else. No. When his kindness towards us appeared by regeneration, by renewing the Holy Spirit, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, without going into all the details of what those things are, let me tell you, they have nothing to do with you and I. They're sovereign, sweeping, powerful works of God upon a human whom He has elected to receive salvation. When they come to faith, God regenerates them, renews them by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why we put no confidence in the flesh, because our salvation had nothing to do with us. Amen?
0: So Paul says those three things. I'm back in Philippians now. And he says,
1: We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Then he goes on, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. What's he mean? Well, he explains it right away. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. If anybody anybody could stand up before God and say, I deserve this. It's me. Right? I, verse 5 says what? Circumcised the eighth day. That's like the first law that hits every Jewish newborn boy. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day.
0: Right? Of the stock of Israel, he even knew his tribe. He was a Benjamite.
1: That's significant because the southern kingdom that was returned from exile and re-inhabited the land were the Jews, the descendants of Judah. But part of that southern kingdom was the much smaller tribe of Benjamin. And for someone to actually know all of those generations and centuries later that he was a Benjamite, to even be aware of that would be a significant thing that he could hang his hat on. He's from, from within the chosen, he's even a smaller little chosen one. A Jew who was a Benjamite. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law of Pharisee. The Pharisees were the dot every I, cross every T. The, the religious legalists who took everything so zealously and seriously. Concerning the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Because, because the Jews who saw Christianity emerge... The vast majority of them saw Christianity as a threat, saw it as a counterfeit expression of their religion and were horrified at the fact that Gentiles were allowed to become believers in Yahweh and worshipers of Yahweh without getting circumcised. And so Paul was one of the chief people who back in the day tried to stamp it out. He even had letters from the Sanhedrin, letters that gave him authority to walk into Jewish homes and drag away as prisoners anyone who said they believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul kept the law. So if anyone wants to justify themselves by their own flesh according to the Lord, it's me, Paul says. However, but, what things were gained to me, I've counted loss, for Christ. Wow, there's the alarm. Does that mean I'm done? No, I'm not done yet. Come on, a few more minutes. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, notice, in when he says what things, he's talking about all the things that he just listed. They benefited me in Christ, they're meaningless. You know what matters when you're in Christ? It's a question that answers itself. You know what matters when you're in Christ? Thank you. Yes. That's all. That's all, That's all that matters. It's all about Christ. And all these other things that Paul could hang his hat on, he says nothing. Verse 8, he says, Yet, indeed, I also count all things. <laughs> Everything. I count all things lost. For what? For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, the only thing, I count everything lost except that I know him. I know, K-N-O-W,
0: Christ. That's all that matters. We put no confidence in the flesh. That's all that matters to me. He says
1: for whom, Christ Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, look, as waste. I count it all as garbage, all this stuff that I've lost, that I may gain Christ. Now, this last part of this that I'll end with is so powerful. To be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, and and you can't help but read the words of Romans 3 there that... uh, God is just and the justifier of him who has faith in Christ Jesus. I don't have time to turn there and read the entire paragraph. We start in Romans 3.21 and and read down about 5, 6, 7, 8 verses through there. And it just makes it so clear that we're justified by God's grace through faith and not through anything that we do. All right? Not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness which is from God by faith. I, I shouldn't just breeze over that. Look. You understand that's the issue, right? What is the real issue? The real issue is that God is righteous and we're not. God is righteous, we are not. Christ came. Christ is righteous. And Christ the righteous took on the penalty of the unrighteous when he died. So that his righteousness... Listen, my righteousness... Debt for my unrighteousness was absorbed by the righteous so that the righteousness of the righteous could by God's gift, no other reason than his love for me, so that the righteousness of the righteous could be imputed or credited to me when I believed. Righteousness is the issue. God is right about everything. We're unrighteous in everything but Jesus Christ the righteousness the righteous gave his life absorbing the penalty for unrighteousness that his righteousness might be credited to you when you believe that's the gospel that's the good news your problem is your unrighteousness the problem of the world is not global warming or 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 or, or whatever you know economic things and The problem of the world is not denuclearization. The problem, listen, the problem of the world is that it's filled with a bunch of unrighteous people whose unrighteousness flies in the face of the righteous creator. But that righteous creator loved that world so much that he sent his righteous son who bore all the penalty for all of the unrighteous world of all time. So that the unrighteous, if they humble themselves and repent, and turn to the righteous God in faith in the righteous Messiah, the righteousness of the Messiah is given to them as a gift. Drop your unrighteousness and take Christ's righteousness. And you are saved. And that's why Paul is talking here about not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That's what I'm describing for you. And then this last bit, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What is he talking about there? I thought, I thought about that phrase for a long time. Here's what I think he's saying. Christ died and rose from the dead. Paul counts his life as nothing. What Paul wants to do now is just seek Christ. Because Christ is everything. And he even speaks of sharing in his suffering. Why? Because Christ's resurrection power, the power of Jesus rising from the dead, is the same power that's at work in me now and the same power that's going to raise me up one day.
0: Now listen. There's something
1: to be said here about how Christ died. It would be marvelous to live a long, happy, prosperous life and then die. And then at the end,
0: Christ raises me up. But may I say to you that Christ, in earthly
1: terms, lived a tragic life. He was only 33, 33 years old when he was shamefully publicly executed, having no crime against him proven. It's a tragic life.
0: It was a life of suffering. And then what
1: happened? What happened to this suffering-filled life? He rose from the dead. And what Paul says is, I want to attain to that kind of life. I want to attain a life that is characterized by sharing in those sufferings. Rising from the dead after a long, prosperous life is beautiful, but rising from the dead after sharing in the sufferings of Christ is exceptionally glorious.
0: Christians are persecuted. The more you walk with God, the more you just try to serve, the more you suffer. I can even tell you stories about this week where I found that out to be true. You can just as honestly and humbly, as carefully as you want, just try to preach and serve the Lord Just out of nowhere, man, people will just nail you with things. But you know what? Paul says, Paul says, here's what I want I want to know
1: his power, and I want to share in his sufferings that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I haven't attained that kind of life yet, but I want to live that kind of life like Jesus did, where, where, man, he's only 30 years old when John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and he starts healing people and feeding people and, 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 and providing for people and teaching people and he ends up publicly executed three years later. Paul says, I want to live a life like that, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. We're all going to rise in Christ, right? We don't rise from the dead because of anything that we do. He's not talking about that. What he's saying is, as Christ suffered and died a a death and rose a glorious resurrection, Paul says, I want to live like that and attain that. And may I ask you, can there be anything more glorious than that? Than to live a life that is fully consecrated, holy, devoted to Christ, even sharing in his sufferings, knowing that it may cost you your life or at least cost you the peace that you might otherwise experience in this life, but knowing that in so doing, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ, hoping that one day you will attain that sin-conquering, sin-destroying, glorious resurrection one day as well.
0: Can there be anything more glorious than that, I ask. The glory of
1: Christ's resurrection was magnified by how he lived and died.
0: That's what Paul is saying.
1: Paul is saying, that's how I want to live. And if God wills, that's how I want to die. That I may attain to that resurrection. So well, Paul said, I want to know his power and even share in his sufferings. And he says, I haven't even attained that yet. That's the next, the next message. I haven't even attained that. He's in prison. He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned, presumably to death. And he says, I
0: haven't attained that yet.
1: He either means I haven't attained to that level of suffering yet or I haven't died yet, so I haven't attained that. Right? But you see, it all goes back to the beginning of the passage. Rejoice in the Lord. All of this stuff sounds strange and pie in the sky until you understand rejoice in the Lord. Continually find your joy in God. Stand up with me and let's close our service with a prayer. (sighs) Sorry, didn't get to the last hymn, but truth be told, we started the service 10 minutes late, so. So it was actually a shorter sermon than usual, even if it doesn't feel like it. Alright. After we break here, very quickly, we're going to start our uh, building committee meet and greet, figure out what we're going to do, kind of thing. That'll be up here. All right, And... uh, There's a prayer meeting. You can enter in that. There's no youth group tonight. And uh, enter into everything else that's going on, okay? All right. Uh, God bless you, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Jed, would you close us with a prayer?